Joe Dunthorne was born and brought up in Swansea. His poetry has been featured on Channel 4 and Radio 3. Now 26, he lives in London. Submarine is his first novel. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thanks very much. Let's start with the cover. Just because it's so teenage just to describe it, it's all sorts of doodles and blue blue ink, blue ballpoint ink, it looks a bit like. Did you have anything to do with that? I had to do with it in that I said I loved it when it, when it got suggested. I had a lot of quite clumsy ideas for the cover that I suggested, and thankfully they ignored. They, they suggested to me, how about a cover that looks like a school textbook that's been scribbled on all over, or you know, a, a rough book that's been scribbled on. I thought it was a great idea, and so um, they got this London designer called Nina Chakrabarti, who works in all these kind of school stationary items, uh, you know, biros and uh, felt-tip pens and uh, all fu- funny kind of school pens. And, yeah, she drew it, which I think is a great job. Yeah, it, it's very catchy. And uh, actually, I see that Chip Kidd is here, mm. probably the greatest book designer, uh, yeah. jacket book designer in the world. But we have our own Chip Kidd in Scott Richardson. Yeah, he had some interesting things to say about reflecting content, but also attracting attention. And, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, this is exactly what it's doing. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that thing of, um, you know, the cover that is like extremely eye-catching or kind of um, gets your attention, but actually has no relationship to the content. It's something slightly kind of sad yeah. about that. Maybe, yeah, maybe. perverse or yeah. underhanded. But perhaps you could very quickly give us a an overview of the of the book itself. Sure, yeah. Um, it's a story of a 15-year-old boy called Oliver and his perversions and typically teenage obsessions. And essentially he starts to think that his parents' marriage is in trouble. The novel, As the novel progresses, there's a man who he thinks his mum's having an affair with and it becomes an obsession of his. And he, I wouldn't say stalks, but uh, somewhere along those lines becomes the kind of decides to follow around this man who he thinks his mum's having an affair with. And at the same time as that, there's all his usual teenage stuff of trying to lose his virginity and get a girlfriend and uh, fit in in school and all these other normal things. It's sort of a depiction of, of a typical modern teenager's life. Uh, I don't know about typical, but... Um, I think I, a lot of men, males, could relate to it. I mean, I, I, yeah. You read a lot of reviews that say, what a terrible you know kid, but really... Yeah. As a, as a male, I, you know. That's so interesting. I think that's been one of the really fascinating things about the reviews. Is that it's either like, I just think he's such a abominable human being, you know, he's such a kind of nasty kid, or, or it's like, yeah, he's just a normal, um, typical 15-year-old boy, yeah. which is certainly the angle I was coming at it from. Kind of extreme reactions then. Yeah, you know, you are a bit of a nasty piece oh, of work. Yeah, 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 you um, really are. So... But you're not normal if you, uh, you know, if you aren't. Yeah, yeah, completely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Now, the, so that, that, uh, that leads to my first uh, personal question, and that is, did you or did you not get your seven-year-old cousin to fondle your penis when you were... <laughs> I'm glad that's a direct question. I, I did not, I'm, I'm pleased to say. You were, you were 13 at the time instead of 14? Yeah, exactly. I just yeah. changed, the, changed the hair colour of the, of the seven-year-old, actually. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, no, yeah, my, my parents have asked me the very same question, <laughs> surprisingly. And the police as well. Yeah, right, yeah. 
Okay, so so that was that was pretty nasty, pretty awful. Yes. But uh, yeah. interestingly, you know, you, I think of the sad clown mm. in the sense that uh, Oliver's father is suffering from a depression, mm. and so one of Oliver's ambitions is to find out why his father sometimes stays in bed for days at a time. Mm. I'd like you to reflect on depression and how it may have affected your life or your family's life. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a really fascinating thing, but it's in, it's in my family, and my sister and my dad have both suffered from it. And it's strange in that it's, as I understand it, I'm not a depressive myself, but as I understand it, the kind of one of the frustrations and difficulties of a depression is an inability to very effectively show others what it is that is depressing. You know, like, you can't say it's never possible to kind of put it down to a, a thing. You know, you, like, people want to say, oh, don't worry, look, I'll, I'll take you out for a cup of tea and a, yeah. a chocolate cake. And there's just some quality to depression that is intangible, and that's both difficult for those who know the person who's depressed and difficult for the person who's depressed. I'm glad that you bring it out, though, because I think this is something that... Uh, depression is, is the cancer of 30 years ago where no one talked about it. Yeah. How has it affected Oliver? It sounds here that he's actually quite a nice guy. Uh, he isn't such a terrible uh, character. He's doing what he can to keep his parents' marriage together, but also to make sure his dad's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he is a funny mix of, I think, quite caring and thoughtful and also kind of casually cruel and um, thoughtless as well. He's, he's complicated, which makes for good reading. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's important and uh, ambiguous probably as well, which I think is a, something that normal people have in spades. In terms of the way he thinks about his dad, I mean, yeah, I think it is that thing of it's hard to know that this person if they're spending days at a time in bed and not being able to move especially as he views his other side of his dad his kind of happy dad as holiday dad as he calls him who's kind of like full of like typically daddish punning jokes and is like a kind of you know quite likes to build things and do stuff like that and then to see this his personality flip is kind of difficult I know just from my own experience the most difficult thing about experiencing depression is not being up for your kids, mm. not adding to the fun that they have in their life, mm. and being fearful that you're dragging them down. Yeah. Do you get into the, the father's character at all, how he's feeling? Well, I, I tried to when I was writing it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, I've known quite a lot of people, I've, and my family have suffered from depression, so it's something I've, I've always been interested in. And as a child growing up when my dad was depressed, it was something that wasn't it wasn't necessarily talked about that much. You, you know, you knew it was going on, but almost you felt like he didn't want to say. Well, it's embarrassing. It's yeah. shameful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you have this kind of difficult thing of like maybe wanting to find out or help or being able to kind of be supportive, but at the same time knowing that perhaps they that's not what they really want to make a thing of it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's delicate, isn't it? Yeah, like I said, it's one of those things that, as I understand it, it's very difficult to. Obviously, it's possible to empathise with, but it's, it's very difficult to kind of 
understand the actual quality of depression without actually being depressed. So that, that was one of the challenges, was to try and... I spoke to I have a, a good friend of mine, a writer as well, who suffered from it quite seriously, and so I spoke to him a lot, and yeah, just tried to try and get inside it, basically, as much as I could. The second ambition of Oliver Tate, your protagonist in Submarine, your first novel, and I'm speaking with Joe Dunthorne, is to find out why my mother's getting surfing lessons, and probably more, from a hippie-looking twonk. That's also another big, upsetting issue. Mother screwing around on your father. Yeah. Do you think you're vicariously being cuckolded? Yeah, absolutely. Especially, uh, as we were just talking about, if your father is kind of incapacitated by depression and is no longer kind of the man of the household because he's staying in bed, the way I think of it with Oliver is that he takes on the role of like kind of hero and knight in shining armour and <laughs> upholder of truth in this in this situation, yeah. But he can't he can't exactly sweep her away and mm. have her no. for himself. So yeah. it's, it's again it's a delicate, difficult scene, isn't it? Yeah, because he's got all the kind of Oedipal fears and uncomfortableness that comes along with that and so it's something that he I suppose would rather not have to think about but he's kind of forcing himself into being um, engaging with it and actually a lot of the kind of stranger thoughts that he has is he's very like he's kind of unnaturally open about thinking about his parents sex life and what their kind of like the details of their relationship might be which is I think probably one of his more strange teenage attributes. I, I certainly did not want to know anything no. at all about my parents. But he, he monitors the dimmer switch and these kinds of things. Yeah, he monitors the dimmer switch to see if they're having sex and he you know, counts his mother's tampons and he does Ugh. all sorts of... Um, Sounds like Prince Charles. Yeah. Uh, he, does, he does a lot of strange strange things. Which again makes, makes him uh, int- interesting, mm. if not completely perverted. And finally, I think probably the biggest issue the most important issue on the minds of most young men is to lose my virginity before it becomes legal in just over a year. So what is it about us wanting to lose our virginity? That's a really good question. It must be a number of things. I would say partly it's social slash peer pressure just status, very dumb, simple, confirmable status, you know, like those guys who can, even if they're lying at school, who could talk convincingly as if they had had sex, were of a kind of uh, species above those who, who couldn't. And again, it's we talk about depression being a shame. If you're a virgin, that's shameful, yeah. for a man anyway. Yeah, and that inverse, longer you go the higher the pressure gets and the more difficult everything becomes so it's like it's kind of like just get it over and done with as quick <laughs> and as young as you can because it's only going to get more difficult you know there's like the kind of story of the 40 year old virgin that's, that's, a, that's all that came to mind but you know like this the, essentially you kind of hear stories of someone getting to 25 and it just wasn't possible then and you'd gone too far you'd crossed the line George Bernard Shaw I think he went till he was 40 or even older and then you think of him in a different way by knowing that you know? <laughs> yeah completely I always think of Morrissey who claims to be a virgin and celibate and not interested mm-hmm. in sex which I, I don't 
Well, wasn't Britney Spears going on about that bullshit yes, as well? She was, she was indeed. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of. Yes, yeah, that, that's the flip side of it. That yeah. it is a kind of badge of uh, purity. But yeah, the race, the race delusion. What else is? I suppose, obviously, there's like hormones kicking off. So that's a just yeah, uh, just because the the, th- the thrill of it. Yeah. Well, the fact that we think about it every four seconds or yeah or something like that. Yeah. No, it's just so, it's you forget how fundamental it is at school not just losing your virginity but every kind of step along the sexual uh, road from you know the first fondle to the first kiss these sorts of huge everyone a huge milestone and I remember an awareness of what stage all your friends were at going to someone who was more experienced than you for kind of advice and like well and also wondering who's bullshitting and who's not yeah exactly yeah and as you get your experiences thinking when he told me that story, it was he was actually lying, or you know, like people's information suddenly seems to be slightly shaky as, as you get older and learn things yourself. Uh, that's the, essentially the Chips character who, in the book, doesn't appear very much, but his opinions appear as reported by Oliver. He's a kind of pretty awful bully who claims to have extensive knowledge on everything, and his misquotes are kind of threaded through Oliver's narrative. Yeah, I think that uh, actually gets to another point that's not on the dust jacket. It's this impressive inquisitiveness, curiosity and a desire for knowledge, but also to to show it off as mm. well. Perhaps overcompensating a bit for insecurity, would you say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That That is the kind of awful thing about a, a young person, or any person, I suppose, who uh, feels it necessary to kind of signpost their own intelligence. It just is a sign of some something else, like not even a subtle one, the kind of obvious signpost of your own insecurities, usually. I think of Oliver as a slightly more subtle, or not subtle, but different version of that, in that he's aware, even if in his head he's constantly kind of showing off his knowledge and enjoying his own intellect, which I think he does, he's aware of the kind of social implications of being that clever. And so he's careful to kind of tone down or attempt to tone down his his geekiness, although it's not always success, successful, but I think that's a slightly, you know, he's not a kind of unselfconscious, clever yeah. person. Yeah, he does tailor things and, well, lie, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's interesting because he goes into therapy in hopes that that might open up the relationship that he has with his parents, but then he writes fake love letters from his dad to his mom, and then... <laughs> writes fake diary entries to make himself look a little bit more yeah. sensitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, you've got this perhaps good heart, but I don't know about Machiavellian, but that's not a bad. That's not a bad word. I think. I think it's fair. Well, he kills his girlfriend's dog too, right? He tries to kill his girlfriend's dog. Um, in the end, it's not necessarily his responsibility. But yeah, he's he's very very image conscious and m- takes great pains to manipulate his own image and images of others like his again his father he has to take on the role of making his father more macho or trying to so that he thinks his mum will find him attractive this is very like writes a love letter for um, trying to pretend he's his dad to his mum I suppose it, it comes from a good place that he wants people to be represented well and he wants you know his parents to get on but there's a lot of manipulation and lying and false information that goes along with his attempts to make people the best they can they can be or yeah 
the means justifying the ends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's to do with the, the scene where the dog dies as well. That's a, a, a very misjudged attempt to make his girlfriend prepared for death. He's, re- <laughs> he's read that in kind of pop psychology books that pets are a form of kind of early grieving training, and that trial a trial run. But then in England, I mean, they love pets more than they love people. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So You'd think it'd be the other way around. Right? Right. Yeah, right. The point that's been made in the number of the reviews, too, that I don't know where this one comes from, but it was that Oliver doesn't always understand the line between mockery and, and humor mm. or between empathy and condescension, which points to the fact that he's, what, kind of dumb or not socially yeah. attuned yet, he, he can be nasty. I think it's um, a mix of social stupidity and he's not always socially stupid, which I think is something that, like, that is true, that sometimes you're kind of on form socially and sometimes you're not, so he has moments of acute dumbness yeah. and missing the <laughs> point, and a, a lot of the humour tends to come from his either kind of being very overconfident or being too cocky or just misreading a situation and presenting it as as if he's just nailed it and he's got things right so we have to kind of tell the reader well you know this is what's happening here especially because he's conscious of social things so like this social you know this bit of body language means this she finds me attractive blah 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 and so it's not that he's totally kind of blind to it all but he just gets the signals wrong the comparisons have been made of course because of Diary and mm-hmm. Adrian Mole yeah I like the comparison to what you're doing because you're a young 25, 26-year-old author Mm -hmm. and the author of Adrian Mole is old enough to be some of these kids' mom. Which book is cooler to read? What are your thoughts about Adrian Mole? I enjoyed it when I was young, but it certainly was never cool to me or I don't think to my kind of peer group. I do remember thinking it was quite good. It didn't take a very... A big effect on me, but um, I, I feel complimented by the comparison, definitely. Well, I mean, the sales of those books were astronomical, too. Yeah, completely, and yeah. worldwide. Seems to me the big deal was pimples, or it, it yeah. wasn't anywhere near as complicated, or maybe mm. it was, but the, the, the humor, your humor is, it, it's serious humor. Yeah, it certainly wasn't an inspiration point for me, that, the book. I only became aware, I only became, I, I kind of became more aware of the Adrian Mole thing, as I was writing, people started saying, oh, you know, it reminds me of Adrian Mole, so I, like... Well, t- yeah, again, mostly because it's a teenager and it's the, the diary involved. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I took the opportunity to include him being called Adrian Mole by his peers because they see him writing in his diary. It's like, because I thought, well, basically, I can't avoid the fact that this comparison is going to be made, so I might as well make a joke about it. Put down. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. I, and also, to get across that, it, it well, you know, it would have been a put down to have been called... Adrian Mole when I was young. Yeah. It was not, it wasn't particularly cool. And I did want to write something which was a bit more edgy. Uh, appropriate to you know, fifty fifteen year olds are pretty pretty edgy edgy race. I'm speaking with Joe Dunthorne. His first novel is called Submarine. Another famous teenager. Submarine has been called a transplant of the catcher on the right of South Wales. What do you have to say about that? I only have to say I find the comparison so overwhelming that I can't really... I, I mean, it's just a huge, huge compliment. I feel... I love that book. I love Sandra. 
You're not, you're not going to turn out to be another Salinger. Though. Well, I think I've blown it already. I've had my photograph taken all over the place. <laughs> I, I think it's, it seems wildly over the top to me, but uh, yeah, amazing, amazing comparison. This is interesting. You've got a master's degree from East Anglia University. One of, your, one of the authors you respect the most mm-hmm. is W.G. Siebold, mm. who taught there, but he would have taught there before you... Just, I got one lecture from him in the term before he died. A car crash, wasn't it? Yeah, a car crash, yeah. So, does everyone from East Anglia University worship him, or...? I think there's a lot of Seabold fans there. A lot of people actually came, a very good writer called Barry Sherwood, came to UEA from Canada to work with W.G. Seabold. And I think did get to work with him very briefly, but before he died... So people had, had to do a PhD there on, on him, and so people were turning up, you know, before his death, who were already kind of massive fans and were, yeah. So I mean, it's, he's a he's a pretty big he's a pretty big figure, but also because I suppose he wrote about the area as well, and um, Rings of Rings of Saturn is him walking through Suffolk, but I mean, apart from that, he's just an amazing amazing writer. Why? I when I read his books, it's this the best thing about him is I can't be that literary about it because I can't explain especially why I enjoy the books there's that kind of it's almost a boringness that I really really appreciate when you're reading it and it's kind of slow and methodical and he's just telling you you know various pieces of information and it's kind of somber tone and there's no particular narrative pull and the structure doesn't seem to reveal itself to you particularly and the photos are obviously a kind of tone effect as well in that they're black and white and they have a kind of somberness and often they're quite bad photos as well things you can't really tell what they are and I can't go go much further to say what the the methods are except that the effect is totally captivating and uh, memorable and distinct I feel like no one nothing I've read replicates that feeling and what is that feeling it's a, a feeling of being told some really, really important information in a way that is, I suppose, resonant, for, for want of a better word. It's, it's, it's like almost having your, your grandfather next to you telling you a, yeah. a, rambling, a rambling, seemingly uh, undirectional story. Filled with universal truths? Filled or? with universal truths. His, like, his kind of very unshowy way with comparison, essentially by placing things next to each other more than doing anything else. It's not like saying, oh, by the way, you might want to note this. You know, Subtle uh, yeah, juxtaposition. juxtapositions of, of stories, and it's that just meditative quality that I find so, I don't know, peaceful is the right word, but it's very, um, yeah, it has a real kind of steady, even quality to it that I, find, I really like. I'm reminded, uh, and this may be a completely uh, comparison that isn't, that isn't valid, but mm. uh, there was a film that Kubrick made called uh, Barry Lyndon years ago in the 70s and it was you know it it took 10 minutes for the camera to pan out so you could eventually see this gorgeous Mm. wide landscape but if you weren't in the right mood to see that Mm. if you wanted to see an action flick yeah you you would hate it yeah but I was in just the right mood I walked a couple of miles Mm. to get to the theater Mm. and I was mellow, and uh, it sounds to me like 
I mean, that's a really. I think that's a really nice um, comparison. That it is that like it's certainly you have to be in the right mood and you have to get into the right mood. Pro- probably you're never going to be like oh I'm in a Seabell mood because it's not that sort of book. But you have to give it time and the space and, and get into it. For me, the one I read first and I still think is my favourite is The Rings of Saturn, which is him walking around Suffolk. It's certainly not the weird thing is it's not my kind of book. It's not my type of writer. I wouldn't, I'd never attempt to, certainly never attempt to write like that, nor particularly to read, read other stuff along that, those lines. So yeah, it feels unusual for me. It feels like a real, it's something particularly good quality to see mm-hmm. about that breaks through. But I mean, I know lots of people who find him just straight boring, which I can see. Uh, I'm speaking with Joe Dunthorne, who is a first-time novelist. His first novel is entitled Submarine. You've been described as a ferocious comic talent. And I wonder if you could you know, necessarily dissect it, but mm. what is it that, that you see, that you have an eye for, mm. that makes what you write so funny? Tough one. I think I write a lot of poetry as well. And for, for me, for, or at least for my type of comedy, that I, that I think of like, the things that are funny in my book, is it, a lot of it comes down to the sort of focus on language that... I've been trying to train myself to do with poetry, you know, where you really, each sentence or line or whatever it is, I take a lot of time over and I try and get it right. I think you can pretty much, there's a lot of jokes you can get that are just in the phrasing or in the timing or in the rhythm or the weight or just the information. Most jokes are just the uh, order in which you present information and that, that's a punchline, you know, uh, or a reveal or whatever. So um, I, I never especially wrote to make a funny comic novel obviously I knew there were jokes in it but what I really wanted to do was have every at least every paragraph be interesting and lively and full of his personality and I think that's where the kind of density of jokes comes in because I was always trying to find if I could find a way to make a sentence funny I would do my best to make it that mm-hmm. and that might might just be like the word choice or the phrasing, which is all, I think, of like poetry, again, you know, poetic techniques. And then, you know, not that many gags that are like, kind of like, yeah, telling a story, here's the punchline type of joke, they're no. mostly turns of phrase, or... Or situational, or, too. Right? Or situational, where there's a gap between the situation, as you, the reader, interpret it, and what Oliver tells you is going on. That's like another, that's like probably the main theme of humour in the book, is you're reading going... The other characters in, in this scene are thinking this about this strange boy, and the boy tells you the opposite or something different. So they're surprised. Then. Yeah, surprised, <coughs> and reading between the lines. Humour is, is something that you have to kind of work at. I, I think the other thing, too, is the, sh- the shock value. The fact that this young man could be doing these awful things. Mm. Maybe sh- shock value is not the right thing. Maybe it's just that we all, all of us men, went through that. It wasn't a big deal at the time, but we look back on it. You just have to laugh. It's almost it's almost like when I was young, we used to get shit-faced drinking every weekend and then drive home. And that was funny. Yeah. You know, if someone writes about getting hammered and acting really stupidly, Yeah. it's just, it's so irresponsible that it's funny. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, I mean, it's the time of your life when you're going to behave 
most stupidly you will <laughs> at, at, at any other point. Yeah, if you can survive those years, then yeah, you probably you know, it, yeah. things will even out a bit after that. Pro- probably. Yeah, I think there's obviously tons of room for kind of not exactly slapstick, but just the type of misbehaviour, vomit and the uh, drinking and the um, all the kind of bodily uh, yeah, all the, all the bodily stuff <laughs> that is ripe for jokes, basically. Yeah, and again, uh, I just wonder why. I, these things are funny. Mm. Vomiting. I mean, why is it so funny? I wonder. Yeah. It just is. With those like bodily things, it's almost like it's linked to a disgust mechanism as well. You know, like kind of horror is part of it's part of the joke. So, have you spilled your guts then in this submarine, or or is there more uh, more vomit to come? I don't know how much. There's probably a fair bit more vomit to come. Maybe not quite as much as as in submarine. I'm working on another novel that is well just starting going at the moment it's about a couple who meet at university and go on to set up a, a commune I've got various friends in my life who grew up on communes and so it's about them setting it up and I'm kind of following them through maybe like 30 years they have kids and they homeschool these kids it's, it's about I suppose it's about an attempt at a mini utopian society or at least they're trying to extract themselves from our society and attempt something different so that's what I'm writing about, and it's kind of just in its beginning stages at the moment. And also I have a poetry collection that is slowly fermenting. And are you going to be poking fun at these people? or? Uh, that's the thing, I really don't poke fun at them. You, you like their idealism? If, it, if it's funny, uh, you know, fine, but I, I certainly want to engage with the idealism in a, in a kind of genuine way. Although there's kind of like religious stuff in there, and it's, it's so easy to be flippant and... and snidey about religion, I want to try and engage with it at least as something meaningful, even if I don't kind of buy into the details of it. It's proving to be a challenge to try and find that right line where, because it's just like overdone and easy pickings to be like cruel and dismissive of these attempts. So I'm trying to like write about that kind of post-hippie commune, like not the kind of communes we think of where everyone's like having sex and you know, all this kind of naive like naive stuff is going on, but a, a modern, more sophisticated, partly engaged with the modern world version that is something a bit more subtle and, again, still, like, you know, hopeful and trying to create something good, but it's not got some of the kind of um, slightly naive childishness that I think we think of when we think of the 60s, 70s communes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm trying trying to be a bit more... Trying to be generous. <laughs> yes. Kind. Yep. Well, it's very kind of you to stop by here. My pleasure. Thank you for your time, and wish you best of luck with uh, this novel and mm. future efforts. Thanks very much. Joe Dunthorne was born and brought up in Swansea. That's the South Wales. Correct. His poetry has been featured on Channel 4 and Radio 3. Now 26, he lives in London, and Submarine is his first novel.